You're listening to the GP Supervisors Australia podcast, teaching your registrar about chronic disease management series. Part 1, teaching your registrar about chronic disease management and related MBS items. Our guests are Jane Kaligeros and Dr. Meron Orland. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which this recording is taking place and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and their families. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. I'd really like to firstly welcome and say a big thank you to our presenter, who's Jane Kaligeros. Jane has a nursing background and a total passion for chronic disease management, so much so that in 2015, she founded CDM Plus, which stands for Chronic Disease Management Plus, and is really keen to share all her wisdom about this topic. CDM Plus provides training and resources for general practices and Aboriginal medical services throughout Australia. And I'd also like to give a warm welcome to Dr. Meryn Orland, who is a rural generalist based in Scone. She is our VTS GP supervisor, and she is also a GP anaesthetist. So she covers ED. She has worked in a lot of rural locations, so has a great deal of knowledge in the different ways that this area of general practice is managed. Thanks, Margot. So a couple of the learning objectives is to just kind of understand the different types of chronic disease management activities, to go through the practice team members involved. We're going to touch on a few of the different item numbers in chronic disease management, some common errors and mistakes and how to flag them, and identifying eligible patients for chronic disease management activities and where you can get hold of some resources as well. We're going to kick off. So what is chronic disease management? If you're like me and you came from like a hospital background, we didn't really have much to do with chronic disease management at that end, really. So it's the life of primary health care. It's the term used for delivering that long-term care for patients with one or more conditions. So some of the statistics that you guys are probably already aware of is that one in two Australians have at least one chronic condition and one in four Australians have two or more of those conditions. So in primary health care, the registrars working there will most likely come in contact with lots of patients that have a chronic condition. There's no definite list, but these are some of the like suggested and it's usually something that lasts for six months or longer. Jane, that's a really big topic of conversation for GPs and GP registrars. Is this a chronic disease? Can I make them a GP care plan? You know, is infertility one? How how do you cover that off for the registrars? I kind of look at it, if you can make a 12-month plan for the problem, then you're kind of heading in that right direction. Is a sorto or something like that, you know, you really need something of a condition and the reason you're doing this plan is so, you know, they can either access services or you need a plan, like a formal plan in place to be able to manage that care over the 12 months. So, yeah. I mean, so much has come up with the classic question that we see on GPDU and stuff about obesity. Is obesity there? Is infertility there? Back pain is there. And I think your guidance there on if it's going to be around for 12 months and you can help improve it with that is probably how Medicare would see it. And that's what Medicare actually says in some of the guidelines and other documentation. And RACGP actually came out, I don't know, a couple of years back and said that they all kind of agreed that obesity was a chronic condition. And then some of the Medicare guideline paperwork is, you know, the date on it says 2014, but it's still active and within the Medicare 
and Department of Health website. So you kind of have to go with that as well. I mean, if you want formal clarification, you can always ask MBS. But yeah, basically, if a room of your peers would do it, then you, you kind of follow that guidance. You know, sometimes, you know, as a, as a nurse, we've been asked to do care plans. But if I can't see like a way to create that care for 12 months, then yeah. But it is a big topic. It gets us at all the workshops that we run as well. So usually we go on like the big conditions and then anything from there and in between. And it depends on the practice team you work with as well. Play it by ear and ask Medicare. But I've done them like lots of times for patients with obesity and they've usually got other conditions as well by then. Like it's not just that one condition, there's other comorbidities as well. So when we talk about CDM appointments, we actually focus on four when we're helping practices get their systems and processes in place. So you've got your care plans, the reviews, health assessments, so that's time-based and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health checks and mental health. For those of you working out there, like mental health has become such a big area and what usually happens even with care plans is that the patients will come in and either have the mental health care plan or a care plan but they rarely come back for the review. So we include mental health because when we actually, when a mental health care plan is like created, we actually make sure that that follow-up review appointment is booked for the patient as well because otherwise they just seem to get lost in the system and you get buried in reminders. One of the questions we always ask at one of the workshops is who is actually involved in your patient's care? We normally write them all up on a big whiteboard, bits of paper and whatever, but one out of the two always gets left out. Usually they'll leave off the patient, as in not being involved in the care, and admin staff. So to me, admin staff play a really big part in chronic disease management. Everything begins and ends with reception. So when people talk about how do you get uh, long-term quality care like done and it's by involving the whole practice team, I've seen it happen so many times where it's one nurse or one doctor, like that kind of thing, just involved in the chronic disease management. And if they leave or go away or on holidays, the whole thing seems to fall apart. So yeah, admin and the rest of the practice team are important to hold it all together. Have a quick look at practice team roles. So as we said, reception, and that's everything from booking and confirming appointments to updating patient details and checking patient eligibility. One of the training we provide isn't just for clinical staff around chronic disease management. We actually spend a lot of time training admin staff. So teaching them how to use PRODA to check the MBS eligibility before we do any of these activities is one of those skills that we teach them to do as well. The nurse Aboriginal health workers kind of do the collection of information, whether it's a care plan or a health assessment or review, and help the GP to coordinate the care. Then we've got the GP as well, so planning, coordinating the care and providing those ongoing reviews to monitor progress. So depending on like the staff resources in a clinic, you see different levels of admin support or specific CDM nurses on certain days and that kind of thing. It just depends how many nurses you have in a clinic. But if you actually look at the number of patients, say your practice population is 5,000 and half of those patients have a chronic condition that requires a care plan. So you're looking at two and a half thousand appointments that you need for chronic disease management. And then if each of those patients has just one review during a 12-month period, then you're looking at 5,000 appointments. I'm just working out how many appointments that ends up being. So it's like 96 a week. So if you're a five-day a week clinic, so you're looking around 19 appointments a day that are just meant to be for care plans and reviews. 
people go, Jane, why do you tell me that we're not going to reach that ever? But I'm just kind of putting that number out there because we have to start planning at that larger level to have those planned regular appointments. So the other thing, I get told all these different challenges all the time and we try to kind of fix some of these challenges. So staff, so the number of staff, if they've had training or not, part-time workforce, all these things like affect, you know, the amount of chronic disease management that can be delivered. Patient engagement is always a big one as well. How to engage the patients in the process. So that's always a big question. And then having no systems or processes. If you ask most practices, they can pull out their policy and procedure manual and go through anything from annual leave all the way through to, you know, the operation of of your practice from day to day. But if you ask them what their systems and processes are for chronic disease management, they don't have one. It's either ad hoc or one of the nurses might start and and get things up and running and then if they leave, it kind of goes back and it's really individualised to the clinic sometimes. Our health system, it's got its limitations and complexity sometimes. And as we just said, the number of patients plays a big part of a challenge as well and technology. So computer literacy and just getting to know your software and templates. So we spend a lot of time kind of increasing these efficiencies, especially in the software if we can, because they do save you time and they make it streamlined. One of the questions that was in the pre-questions was around how do you get everyone kind of doing the same quality of care plans and chronic disease management? And that answer that I wrote down was to do some work around the templates and autofills. So if you want people to be doing the same thing, it becomes a process. So if you want them to gather like that certain amount of information, then that's in the autofill, goes across into the template and that kind of thing. So it's all around that staff training and getting things set up. And then time. Usually that waiting room is pretty full and people just go, I don't have time. Like they're squeezing patients in and they don't have time for the planned care. So they're the challenges. If you had to choose one thing off that list where you reckon you get the most return, bang for your buck, to concentrate on, which one would it be? It's usually around the templates. So if you're using these templates 10, 12 times a day, you're losing efficiency and you could be seeing a couple of extra patients if these things are set up properly. You really, you know, with the quality piece, all these things like going forward, you really need the data to go where it belongs. So you don't want to have to double type or anything like that. So your templates need to be very ready to go. Yeah, you don't want to be typing twice or, yeah. And look, from my experience, when you have registrars coming through and it's a great opportunity for them to meet some patients too to help with yeah. care planning. If Definitely. you've got template, they know what's expected of them and, and they don't miss stuff and we know it's compliant with Medicare. Yeah. They're learning something. And I think there was a question on here about preventative health. And all of my care plans have that thing about vaccination and screening. So that preventive health is not just about making sure they get their toes checked by the podiatrist, but, oh, they've turned 65, although they've just changed the rules about vaccinations. But, you know, they've turned 65, we should do this. They've turned 70, we should do this. Have they had their breast screening, bowel screening, pap testing, they're things that are included in all my care plan templates, so I make sure I meet those as well. Yeah. So to me, there's like overlapping things with every care plan. You're right. So we're going to talk briefly about the different care plans and health assessments and around that patient engagement as well. So 
I actually believe that a care plan is the same as a health assessment. So there's those overlapping things. So regardless of what patient I'm seeing, I'm going to be recording observations. I'm going to be checking medications. I'm going to be looking at the last set of bloods and seeing if they're due. I'm going to see what team members are involved from outside our clinic and those prevention, early intervention activities, like you're saying. So vaccinations, cancer screening, mental health, cognitive screening, like any of those activities that we can do, we need to flag them. Just like we said, that is our plan for the next 12 months. And same with the health assessment, we're flagging some of these things to kind of prevent or like detect something a little bit earlier and action it. So it's not, you know, delaying diagnosis and treatment if possible. And then I also always put a patient needs and goals because sometimes we get carried away and it becomes this big clinical list of tasks for the patient to do. And then they go running for the hills and don't come back. I always ask for their input and sometimes we send them home with a homework sheet to kind of think about what health goals they may have. And even if they can start writing some of those things down, we can help them formulate it into like a smart goal to help them achieve it. You know, you have to include that prevention, early detection activities, regardless of what CDM activity we're doing usually. It just really ends up in a separate document, doesn't it? Like really, your health assessment will end up in a different document. Your care plan or review will end up in a a different document as well. And then we actually do something that we call the next appointment. So regardless of what the patient is in for, there is always a next appointment that you can bill. So if I was doing the health assessment today and it was one of those annual or every 10 month, nine months now for the 715s, if that was a recurring health assessment, then we would book that the day that they're in the clinic. And there's a couple of reasons why we do that. When people talk about patient engagement, if we build that relationship with the patient and then we say, okay, we're going to send you out a letter in three or six months, They've kind of lost that connection. I don't know about you. Like I get the things from the dentist and that kind of thing. You kind of just pop it in the pile over to the side for like a couple months is usually how long it sits there. And to me, that delays management. So if I needed to see the patient this month in June and we started doing our recalls in June, when do you think the patient would actually get seen in the clinic? It's usually not till about August if you look at the wait list in a lot of clinics. So when I say that we book the appointment today, we do that because I know that a couple months down the track, patients going to be able to get the doctor of their choice, the time, the day they want. So if they commit to me as a nurse doing that care plan or health assessment, and then they go in and see the doctor, and then the doctor reinforces that, that we need to see you for the review in six months or you know for your next care plan or the skin check, whatever it may be then they commit to the GP as well. And then by the time they get to reception, they're booking the appointment. So they've committed three times face-to-face with pretty much everyone in your practice team to come back in in three months or six months or, you know, nine months, whatever the appointment might be. And we've found that that actually increases the patient attendance rate. So they actually do commit. They, when they're booking their appointment at the front counter, then they're actually going, oh, well, I've got to drop the kids off or that's the day I'll go to golf or, you know, so they're actually picturing themselves coming back to the appointment, which is what you want. (laughs) So types of health assessments, it can be pretty overwhelming walking into primary healthcare because it's so confusing (laughs) some of the chronic disease management activities. So I break it down into three types of health assessments. I found it's the easiest way to kind of teach anyone how it all works. So I call them time-based health assessments, which are those item numbers 701, 3, 5 and 7. There's the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People's Health Assessments, which is the item number 715. 
And then there's the heart health assessment, item number 699 at the moment. So I'll just break it down to those three categories to make it a little bit easier to understand. Just a quick look at the time-based health assessment. So it just gives you a really quick little description. And when we go in and have a quick look at Medicare, I just want to show you why. So these are taken straight from the descriptors in the explanatory notes for these item numbers. And they change the descriptor or item numbers whenever they like. Even though I give you this information today, I'm actually going to show you how to look something up on, or I've given you the instructions on how to look something up on Medicare, because you need to be able to download and have a look at what changes have been made because it changes. So they changed these and added simple, straightforward, extensive and complex sometime last year. I think it was the beginning of last year. So even though it's got a time limit, they actually added those extra words as well. So even if something might have taken the hour, but it was a very straightforward assessment, you're kind of looking at a 703, if that makes sense. So it's not just the time, but these health assessments are a health assessment that actually counts the nursing time plus the GP time. So just keep that in mind when you're finalising your billing as well. In order to qualify for one of those time-based health assessments, they have to fall into any of these categories. The hardest age group to actually get into the clinic are these 40 to 49 and 45 to 49 year olds. Um, and you don't just have to be 40 to 49, you actually have to have the high risk of developing type 2 diabetes as well. The over 75 year old patients, that's pretty straightforward. And then the residents of aged care facilities, they also have one intellectual disabilities, humanitarian entrance refugees and former serving members of the ADF. So it's really hard to just, oh, this person is eligible for a health assessment because there's extra criteria involved in each of those. Jane, in group one, so most of us do the over 75s. We all know we should do that one. Not that many of us have ADF members in our community. It does get missed. It really does. Yeah. Not, there's no way to record it. Yeah. Yeah, certainly rurally we don't have too many humanitarian entrants. But I feel like I, because I looked at this list and I went 40 to 49, I remember we did this whole run with the type 2 diabetes risk assessment. How do you reckon we could pick up on that group? There's a couple of things I've seen that have been really good promotional things. There's one clinic that told me that they actually do uh, 40-year-old birthday cards and they send them out to their patients, you know, throughout the year. And it's kind of like, happy birthday, 40. And then on the inside, it's got the screening question. So it just says, you know, if you've answered this, then you're, you know, you might be entitled to like a health assessment. And that worked really well for that clinic. The other way to do it is, you know, this diabetes risk assessment is one of those screening tools. So the print off PDF is actually really good to have, you know, sitting in your waiting room. So there's, you know, a brochure you can order. It's got the trifold brochure or you can just print them off and have them there. Having those things out and about in your clinic while the patients are sitting there waiting. You might see, you know, the mums coming in or dads like with the kids. It's that age group. They're really hard to pin down because they've normally got young families themselves working full time, elderly parents. They're really hard to pin down. You can also do searches with, you know, your secondary like software like PenCat, those kind of things. And because a lot of that diabetes risk assessment is based on demographics. So age, gender, smoker, uh, that kind of thing. So it's easy to run something on PenCat. And if you actually run it yourself, it's really easy to end up in the high risk just because it's really easy to end up in high risk. So we normally run that as an activity in one of the workshops as well. 
So yeah, just doing it frequently. It's in a lot of the software. But like I said, I prefer the PDF one usually, especially if you're doing it with a patient. I still do it on the computer. But if you're going to depress them and tell them that they're about to get diabetes, then you might as well give them something that they'll be able to look at at home. So it might just print it out and have it in the waiting room and they might self-identify. Well, not just that, but if I'm doing the activity or you guys are doing it with them as a GP... Then on that printed out one from the Department of Health, it actually has the different scoring. So you can say to them, well, if you started exercising 30 minutes a day, we could decrease your number from, I think it's two to zero. Or if you stop smoking, we could go from there to there. So I think if you're going to press someone and send them on their way, then you kind of need to give them something to have a think about. So yeah, I like to send them home with that. If you're going to do it with them, that screening tool and you know, doing it as a new patient, as just part of those screenings, we normally do it in there as well and identifying to say look you might be eligible for this health check I've seen admin staff have it at the front counter as well and if they check in anyone that's in that age group 40 to 49 then they'll just hand it over as well yeah there's lots of different ways to kind of catch them it just like I said they're hard to pin down it's not something that they're automatically going to go well I can have a health assessment But yeah, the most popular one in the clinics is the over 75 because they're willing and able and usually presenting a couple of times throughout the year. But yeah, the 40 to 49, 45 to 49 is a bit harder and takes a little bit more strategic thinking and implementation to kind of get them in. And the 75s you can do every year Mm -hmm. and the 40 to 49s you can do... Every three and the 45 to 49 is a once only... It makes it complicated to try. I know, yeah. In my practice, we use best practice and we have the little comment box up there and we'll put the date of the 715, we'll put the date of whatever health assessment so that we know it's been done. So, you know, we encourage registrars to get involved in chronic disease management and care planning and that enables it sort of like a reminder to show them Well, actually, this back to the 715, and the last time we did it was January 2017. So maybe that's a good opportunity. You've seen them once or twice. It's a good opportunity to go, you know what, why don't I bring you back? We'll make some time. We'll do your 715 for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So one of those things that we teach admin to do is the day before, usually in the afternoon, because your list is kind of finalised by then, you'll get a couple walk-ins maybe the next day but they'll check the eligibility for your booked patients. And if you're using best practice, they might document that, you know, that they'll put the date and then they'll put eligible 721, 723, 715, that kind of thing, yeah. because you want to know that they're eligible before you're booking them back in, especially with the 715s. Like I've, you know, worked a couple of places in Australia and, you know, sometimes someone will go to the doctors for something else, not their regular GP, and some of these bigger ticket item numbers will get billed. And that's part of is what it is. But yeah, and then you'll go to build that. Like you'll say, oh, it hasn't been built in a little while, but it'll have been built at another clinic. So uh, yeah, we always just check the eligibility and, you know, an admin person can check like a couple doctors lists in the afternoon. It takes them about 15 minutes, 20 minutes to do a full list. Just using Proda, it's really quick and simple and just, you know, minimises the rejections that you might get from these as well. So then the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health checks. So they're in three separate age groups and Medicare kind of expects three different health assessments. Like there's a lot of differences in the health assessments. So the 0 to 14, you can imagine a lot of it's about mum's pregnancy and the early development years. Uh, the 15 and 54 is the adult. 
and then it's older adult from 55 years and on. So if you're not familiar with those health assessments, then I recommend having a look because they're very detailed, especially the 0 to 14 age group. And then the heart health assessment, I mean, it's only around till I think June next year. As we said, I'm all for doing the preventative stuff. So the cardiovascular risk, ECGs, we do as baselines, you know, for patients, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, usually from 30 on anyway, as a baseline ECG. And then patients usually in that 40 or if they're diagnosed with blood pressure, that kind of thing, we're doing a screening ECG. So doing the cardiovascular risk is just this heart health assessment. There's a couple things to consider, I guess. Um, so it's set out for this one item number, the 699. It's available once in a 12-month period. Now, if the patients had any one of these health assessment item numbers in the brackets there in the previous 12 months, then you can't bill it. And you really wouldn't want to bill it if they're eligible for another health assessment. So I've just put things to consider. So if the patient identifies as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, then I would never do a heart health assessment. And why I'm saying it like that is because if you bill the 699, which, you know, a lot of Aboriginal medical services went ahead and did big heart days and all this kind of stuff, and they were billing that 699 item number, when they've gone to bill the 715, they couldn't bill the 715 then. So not only is it like a lot less money, but the 715 opens up the pathway for the allied health visits. So if they haven't got the 715 billed, then we can't do the EPC visits. So I'm all for doing the cardiovascular risk and baseline screenings and bloods and cholesterols and everything else, but work it into that 715 health check. Jane, for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander patients, can they get more than five EPCs? They can if they've got a chronic condition. So under the 715, they get five. And under a care plan TCA, they get another five. So, yeah, if they don't have a chronic condition, that's one of the reasons that they actually have those five under the 715 health checks. So, yeah, if the patient's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, I wouldn't consider doing the, the heart health assessment at all because you block off the EPC visits if you needed to, to refer them on and they didn't have a chronic condition. So as an example, you might want to send them to the dietitian and, you know, EP or something like that. They don't actually have a chronic condition as yet, but if you actually build the heart health assessment, you can't do that. And then the other thing to just consider, so if the patient is not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, so you're looking at the time-based health assessments that we went through first. So if the patient's actually eligible for the time-based health assessment, then same thing, you would actually do that one because financially it's almost three times the money depending on the item number for the health assessment. So work the cardiovascular risk into that health assessment. So as an example, if I did a 45 to 49-year-old health check on this patient, when they turned 50, I would do the heart health check. Does that make sense? Because they wouldn't qualify for any other health assessment till they're 75. So you'd actually do the 699. If they're 51, 52, those kind of things up to undiagnosed cardiovascular disease. So yeah, it's just something to have a think about. It just made it a bit complicated the way they did it as an extra item number. The other thing we get asked a lot during the workshops and training that we do is what observations to include in a chronic disease management activity, whether that's a care plan or a health assessment or review. And if you're teaching like your registrars and things in their autofills that they, you know, might use for their progress notes, sometimes we actually just put which, so say it was the 715 for a child, there might be specific things that we wanted done for those children coming through with those health assessments. Or the over 75s, you know, you might have something specific that you want. 
So if you're training someone, it's a good idea to just let them know what you want recorded. So as I said, ECG we do as part of the early screening and annually for patients with chronic disease. Spiro, same thing, annually for patients with respiratory. And then urinalysis we normally do as part of the chronic disease management, whether it's the care plan or health assessment during that time. Jane, just to clarify, if you do an ECG and a health assessment or a care plan, you can also bill that and spirometry separately? Yep. You can bill it all on the same day. Where things get rejected sometimes and that's when people go, oh, no, you can't bill that together, is where it comes down in the finalising. So if you went to bill, you know, a health assessment ECG together, then depending on what software you use, it's usually to the side of each item number, you actually have to put the drop down not related because that's usually the most common reason it will get rejected. And then if you did a care plan and a health assessment together, then it might ask you to, or they've been asking a lot more now, you need to document the time of each of those visits just so they've got it in there. They'll send it back as a rejection, but the reason will normally say to notate the time. Everyone gets scared about billing and auditing. and So would you say you could bill a 715, a 721 all in one day? Depends how confident the people doing them are. So, you know, I've been in primary healthcare 10 years. I've as you said, like I've got a lot of shortcuts, a lot of documents already set up and ready to go. And as I said, a lot of the information that we're collecting overlaps. So at the end of the day, it's two separate documents, but a lot of overlapping information. So if you're comfortable doing that, then there's no reason why you can't. I used to work with a GP and he used to prefer if we did a time-based health assessment with the care plans, not with the 715s for the time-based. So he would pick instead of the 707, which was an hour, he might pick the lower number, the 705, to kind of say, well, that other 20 minutes in that hour was for the care plan. And I know care plans aren't time-based, but yeah, he is to justify it like that. So it really comes down to the GP of what they're comfortable doing and the staff helping them. So if it's a nurse and they're not you know, confident doing that, then you know they'll bring them back for another appointment. But yeah, it, it depends on the clinic and the GP. At the end of the day, I've done both. There's some clinics, uh, some of the corporates that won't actually bill to big attendance items like that because it goes against their numbers for their reporting. So for no other reason but the reporting. So a lot of it's around the the different clinics and what they've got set up. I personally tend to do them separately. I might do a 715 and then, you know, they're coming back to see me in, you know, eight weeks or something else. And so then I might do their care plan and then their review another three to six months later. So we're not a totally... Rushing them and stuff like that to get it done, then there's no value in it to the patient and yeah so I've done both if you can't get through what you need to get through then you you just you bring them back so sometimes if I've done uh, I might see them for the first time for a care plan and then you might see that they're eligible for the 40 to 49 I might do that with the review when I bring them back so if I do that initial care plan and then go back and do the health assessment and review what's happened as well in that time sometimes we do it that way yeah it just depends on the clinic yeah especially around some of the other like community programs out there. It's good to know what's available in your area, like outside of the clinic or, you know, might be one of the hospital programs like falls prevention, that kind of thing. So it's really good to know what's around your area. There was one question, Jane, about can you include your admin staff as one of the people in the team care arrangement? I wish. Mm. No, as far as I know, no. I'd like to. What about your practice first? Not if they're employed by the clinic, technically. 
the document I was saying that's from 2014. It's still live through Medicare as a link to the Department of Health. And it's even saying like, you know, if they're, they're only seeing them for something like regular care, like an optometrist as an example, then they're not one of the team members. So the prevention early detection activities that we were talking about earlier. So in that shortcut, we've actually got a chronic disease manual that outlines all this really well, because when you're learning, there's so much involved and it actually just, you know, lines out all these things. So immunisations, are they eligible for one of the health assessments? What cancer screening are they, you know, eligible for based on their age, etc.? The OSRIS tool, cardiovascular risk, K10. I remember when I first came to primary healthcare, I wasn't that great on the mental health screening questionnaires, but you know, if you're working in chronic disease management, K10, the DAS, like or any of those screening tools, you need to become like quite familiar with. So if you're not sure of how to use them or how to access them, use the best patient, print out the hard copy and practice. And as I said, like we do a lot of today in the next appointment. So we run a workshop, it's our intro workshop that we normally run. And I always put up a case study patient and that patient, you know, he's in his 40s, he's a smoker, he's overweight, he's coming for a wound. And I just ask the question, you know, what's something that you would do for the patient today? And then what's something we would do as a next appointment? And everyone kind of attacks this patient. They do everything, they want to do everything with this patient on the one day. But the problem with that is sometimes you don't have the time. So you've usually got a a waiting room full of people. So with anything that's a chronic condition, you need to think long-term. So you need to do something that's short-term, so that's today. And then something that we'll do is the next appointment. Because even if we send them home with a list of 10 things to do and they haven't done any of those things when they're due to come back in, what do you think their chances of turning up to that appointment are? Zero. They won't come. They're embarrassed that they haven't done any of the activities. So just try and keep it simple because that's how your patient is going to be able to manage them. It's a long-term thing. So we want to do, you know, something with each visit. So during a care plan or review, like one of the things, you know, you might ask for them to have their eyes checked or podiatrists, but, you know, keep it, you know, one or two things. Don't overwhelm them. We need to keep it manageable for them as well. So yeah, booking that next appointment really helps that because it's that relationship that we want to build. So one of the other things that we do around that patient engagement is I do a thing I call before you see the patient. So if the patient's arrived in the waiting room for a CDM activity like a care plan or health assessment, I won't rush out there and grab them straight away. I know it does terrible things to my waiting times in the appointment book, but they're not waiting for long. Usually I take, you know, five to 10 minutes. I pull up the clinical record. I'll put in my shortcut and I'll start looking at the record. I'll do that for a couple of reasons because I want to actually have a couple of questions of what I need to ask the patient in my head ready to go. So if I'm looking at the bloods and there's no bloods there or, you know, bloods were due and we gave them a form, or if I've seen that they've been to the cardiologist, I've read the letter and it said they were meant to see them last month and I haven't got a letter back, I want to know if they've been back to the cardiologist. So even just by having those couple of things done, when the patient actually comes in for their appointment, I'm not sitting staring at the computer, scrambling through their record, trying to find things. You want to spend that time looking at them and, you know, trying to build that trust and relationship with them. So wherever you can, try and get that information up on your screen before you see them. If Sure, if you need to look something up while they're there, try and do that little before you see the patient. 
And the same thing, if I've finished everything I need to with the patient, that last 10 minutes is usually when I'm creating the document. So I'll get them to go back out in the waiting room because they don't need to sit there and watch me type the document up kind of thing. So it's up to you guys how you do it. But I found that to be the kind of easiest and have the best effect with patients. So you can imagine just sitting there and, you know, your doctor or nurse is just typing at the computer. You don't feel like you kind of want it in that room. And then the other one is around building that self-efficacy for the patients around those smaller achievable goals. We want them to feel that, yes, I did it kind of a feeling by setting those smaller goals. If it's anything from weight loss through to any of their like health goals, yeah, try and work around the smaller ones. You touched there again about templates. And so this is about how do we get our registrars to do good CDM? And, you know, some of them are fantastic, but, you know, how do we get them involved? And I think you touch on that template thing again. And and that's probably what the practices have to do is, you know, we can get our CPD points now by defining processes. So actually map out, give your registrar the process this is what happens. The nurse does this. And, you know, I've got some questions here about how do you get patients to buy into the idea of a plan, especially when they don't want to need to access allied health. So having that sort of plan that's well articulated for the registrar to follow. And then when the patient's turning up, it's booked so they can see. It says chronic disease management or GPMP. They can then go, all right, I'm going to have a look. They've got the, they pull up the template. We in best practice, we have the template there that we use. It's got everything ticked box. You have a look at this, you have a look at that before you call the patient in. So I guess for me, I think templating is key for this to make sure the consistency give the best service yes. to the patient. Yeah. The registrars know what they need to do and we meet the Medicare requirement. And if we do all of that, then the patient gets the best service we can. Definitely. I can't remember what I did yesterday. I can't be expected to remember what's in 11 different types of health assessments. I don't know about anyone else out there, but my memory is not what it used to be. And even at its peak, I don't think it could do that. So I rely on those shortcuts. I rely on, you know, checking Medicare regularly and updating my shortcuts if I need to, if something's changed. But yeah, I definitely couldn't do it without it. And a lot of nurses will have their shortcuts in the prep work, but I actually recommend that the the GPs actually have their own for their bit of it to make sure that they're ticking off what they need to for their part of the care plan or health assessment. And just the last one on there is just remembering that uh, your goals aren't the patient's goals. Like I said, a lot of the care plans sometimes end up being kind of clinical tick lists of what we need to get done for a person with diabetes or a person with asthma. But, you know, that's not what, you know, the patient wants as one of their goals sometimes. That's our goal to keep them well by doing these things to prevent complications and that kind of thing. But it's not really involving them in the process. So giving them that ownership even to, you know, book appointments and that kind of thing kind of helps that with that self-management as well. Top tips. Number one is Medicare, so getting to know your MBS item numbers. Not just the descriptions, but inside and uh, having a look at the explanatory notes. Knowing the MBS billing combinations, so what you can bill with what and what notations you need to write for that to not get rejected as well. 
and review the changes regularly. Medicare, you know, a new download's available every month. There's a page in the downloads if you download like each month and it says summary of changes. So I'm not reading the full book every time. For those that haven't, it's over a thousand pages, you know, but I am reading that page 11, I think it is, on every month download to see what description changes there's been. So if it's anything to do with any of my CDM items, then I'm looking up the item number and seeing like what's changed. As an example, they changed the 73805. So it used to say urine catalase and microscopy of urine. And then they changed that description. It wasn't on, you know, Australian doctor news or anything. Not everything makes the media. But for those clinics that were using the like Siemens machine, because that actual test is like a urine catalase test. So they were using that item number. They didn't know that that description had changed. The HMR, they added three extra requirements into the HMR. That didn't make the news. You know, sometimes practices, the practice manager is actually printing off that summary of changes and letting staff know. But yeah, keeping on top of it is kind of a bit tricky, but definitely like they sneak in changes all the time. And then the efficiencies we spoke about around the software and templates. Sorry, Jane, on Medicare billing, health assessments, nursing time, includable? For time-based, yeah. Yeah, and also there was a question about nursing time for GPMPs. Yeah, so it's not time-based or anything like that for the care plans. So, yeah, the, the question I always get asked is, you know, how long would you recommend that a nurse has a care plan appointment for is usually the question, the million-dollar question I get asked every time. Myself, I prefer 45 minutes and I'm usually with the patient for half hour of that. But as I said, I've been doing this for years and type like a mad woman to get it all in. But usually it's around that hour. But no, it's not time-based as such, but you need all that information there, which usually takes that amount of time. So a lot of clinics I see do 45 minutes and 15 with the GP. But yeah, it depends on the clinic, sometimes 40 and 20. I've seen some clinics do single appointments, but you can't get it done. I'd struggle to get it done in a single appointment. We actually spend a lot of time doing training in the workshops around Medicare. And it's not for me to tell you what to bill and not bill. Things change all the time. And as I said, I want to you know, give you the skills to be able to look it up and, and teach the registrars how to look it up and keep an eye on things because it's their provider number at the end of the day. And I think some of them feel a bit pressured to bill some item numbers sometimes. So there's just a little bit on Medicare on what it is. And if you haven't read the Health Insurance Act and have trouble sleeping, that's another good one. A little bit about the rebates. So pretty much everything in GP land is either 85% or 100%. So if you look an item number up on Medicare, it'll tell you the fee and then it'll tell you the rebate for that. So the GP fee for services is usually the 100%. 85%, the way I normally remember it, is that that's for your test numbers. So spirometry, ECG, those kind of things, you'd normally get 85% of that back. And 75% anything in hospitals. So it's just the easy way to try and remember it. You know, I remember the first time I actually read the Medicare benefit schedule book and it scared the crap out of me. You know, one of the first paragraphs pretty much said you'll go to jail directly to jail. And I was like, oh my God. So, you know, it's just something to be aware of. You know, they introduced a new scheme last year that I'll just touch on briefly around the shared debt recovery. A year and a bit ago, they released not new CDM item numbers, but they're ones for the medical practitioners. We normally have them like through our resources. I still can't remember these off by heart. And you don't need to, but just be aware that you might see some of these item numbers in a patient's billing, depending on what doctors are working at the clinic. So some of the clinics we've been working with, you know, rural clinics have got the medical practitioner item numbers. And then they did something really confusing. 
and added in an extra set of item numbers for the based on location for the diabetes and asthma cycles. And by the way, diabetes and asthma cycle numbers are still operational, even though their practice incentive payments stop. I'm not going to go into too much detail because there's already you know quite a bit out there about telehealth. So I'm not just going to repeat everything again. Myself, I still prefer to do, you know, the health assessments, you know, face-to-face in the clinic because there's a bit involved. But obviously patients still need to access, you know, external services through, you know, the EPCs and things like that. So, you know, they're there to be used. Jane, one of the issues, obviously, we've all switched a lot to telehealth. How do you think we can meet the sort of Medicare criteria for, because there are numbers for them, doing a health assessment on someone over the phone? As I said, I'd prefer not to, especially with a health assessment. For a care plan, if you know them and, you know, you're able to get, like, the information you need by phone or video conference. But I don't know about you, but it's pretty difficult to do, like, a physical... A lot of the health assessments are a lot of physical assessments. And I don't know, I'd find that really challenging to do, you know, face-to-face or video conference. Have you found that? Uh, I haven't done... I have not done a health assessment or GPMP, a new one, by telephone. But I guess we're going to have to with time. Um, And hopefully that's when they are our patient and we know them well and and maybe something new has happened because that's what flags to me that I need to review my patient. I'm guilty. I don't regularly book in a three-month or six-month, come back and see me and we'll review GPMP. I tend to use it as my patient comes in and they've got a, a change in their health or they come in, as someone said on the chat room, oh, some of them just want a referral to the podiatrist to get their toenails done. And that's disappointing because we're doctors and we want to help them and, and I don't just want to give them a free pedicure, you know. So I teach the registrars I work with that when, you know, we do one healthcare plan and I, I believe it's important, I spend my time on it at least once a year. And then when something changes, They either come in and go, I need my toenails done, or they'll have been in hospital because they're unwell, or the letter will come back from the endocrinologist that we referred them to. And that's what flags to me to review them. So I am probably not your perfect Dr. Jane, I'm sorry. Um, But I, I feel like I... Well, no, at least once a year we take the time out to sit down and I explain to them, one of the questions was, how do you get them to buy in? And I explain to them, this is our time to look at not just your sore knee today, it's our time to plan how I keep you well, how I keep you healthy, how I keep you out of a nursing home, how I keep you without breast cancer, bowel cancer, prostate cancer, all of those things. But to me, that list is so long. How long is that list for the 12 months that you put together? Together. Oh yeah, it is. And that's so, but that's me, how I, I can't get that list done unless we see them every twelve weeks. So I want to see them before they end up in hospital. I worked in rural Queensland for eighteen months, and it was just before I, I launched the business, and it was really heartbreaking to see. You know, I had like a lot of Indigenous patients that they were coming in after strokes in their 40s and I just kept thinking like I only saw this person, you know, a couple of months ago. Was there something that I could have done to have maybe stopped that? Or like, you know, so to me, I want to see them before. So that list is so long in that 12-month one. I think it's a great thing to sit down and do that big 12-month list, like in the, the care plan, but it's too much to hand that all over to them on their shoulders. They still need a lot of guidance, support and monitoring to keep that 
going because a lot happens in 12 weeks. A lot happens in, you know, 24 weeks if you're doing it like for six months. It's a long time for a diabetic, for someone with multiple conditions, and they might not notice some of the changes. Yeah, I guess I'm probably talking about the patient to maybe the ones who just come in and ask to have their toes fixed, those sort of patients. But the chronic patients, I'm probably seeing them every five to eight weeks anyway. <laughs> I, I probably should build more. And same with the mental health, like the, the mental health and the care plans get done, the billing just never gets done for a review. A lot of the times the work's being done, it just doesn't get billed. So, yeah, we just make it as one of those, they definitely book the next appointment because we should really see them to, to kind of do that review. And, and that gets the buy-in as well. Like it, a lot of patients that I've worked with as well, you know, they don't know a lot about their conditions and, you know, being able to break down what they have and how to manage it is probably the biggest thing that we can ever teach them, like how to self-manage and things like that, breaking down that content into smaller bite-sized amounts that they can kind of get the hang of is really important, I guess. On MBS Online, so for those that haven't used it, there's three really good bits. So there's a search bar, which is in the top right corner, the downloads, which is in the bottom green section, and MBS Interpretation. For those that have used the search bar before, so basically you just type the number into the search bar and the whole lot of results come up. Underneath the main item number, there'll be a little hyperlink and it'll say explanatory note. They're the bits you really need to read because that's where all that extra information, the, the multiple, you know, billing, if you're billing it with another item number, what needs to be put in and that kind of thing. So have a play around. Those item numbers that we're using all the time, you really need to know what's in those explanatory notes. The downloads, as I said, you know, they do a download every month. So, you know, it's worth having a check and just downloading even the summary of changes to keep up to date as well. And then for anything that you're not quite sure of, you know, the registrar, like it's really good to just show them the interpretation. You can ring the number and from experience, uh, not saying anything against Medicare, but, uh, you know, sometimes if you rang a couple of times, like straight in a row, you would get different answers from different people to the same question. So I prefer to send mine in writing. They're really, you know, quick to answer. And it's usually the BBOs, like the business development officers answering those questions. So I actually prefer to get my response in writing and I do that all the time. So yeah, like Medicare is such a big topic that, you know, we could go on and on with like specific item numbers and things and it would be really good to maybe even show you MBS online on a different night and we can go through like specific questions then for each of the item numbers. But have a practice, have a go. And then the last bit I just wanted to touch on tonight was around the documentation. I know we have through the webinar anyway, but it's around the progress notes. So as I said, my memory is not what it used to be. And so unless, you know, something really exciting or dramatic happened, I can't remember what happened with the patient sometimes. So if I haven't written it in my progress notes, then I'm kind of lost. So, you know, I have a lot of shortcuts and they have all those prevention detection activities that we spoke about, plus the Medicare requirements. And it's the easiest way we've found to train new staff because, you know, you don't want to miss putting something in a care plan or health assessment that you need. And you want everyone doing the same thing. You want it to be consistent. You want it to be long-term and you want it to increase the efficiencies. So depending on the software, how you add them in, it's really easy. 
you know, I think it's comments in MD, it's progress notes or whatever the notation is at the bottom of BP, Communicare, auto text. And so, yeah, as I said, like the nurses and health workers usually have their own progress notes as part of that prep and information collection. But as a GP, like especially the registrars, like I recommend that they have their own ready for any of these CDM activities because, you know, as I said, it's something we should be doing of nearly like 20 appointments a day. So they will be, you know, exposed to it during their training and everyone wants to do the right thing. But, you know, if you don't have it in front of you, what you're meant to put in a mental health plan or that kind of thing, it can be a bit overwhelming for someone like new to do that. Right. Thank you. Maren, I'm just wondering if there is any outstanding questions that you'd like to quickly answer or raise or ask of Jane. So one of them, and it comes up in every practice I've worked in, what do you do about other doctors doing care plans for other doctors' patients? What do you recommend? It's up to the clinic to decide, like, because obviously, you know, a lot of doctors aren't full-time, doctors are on leave, doctors leave, like, practices altogether. And in the Medicare, like, explanatory notes, like, I, I just actually, I'll read straight from where I copied it, like, today from Medicare, but, you know, for a health assessment, like, as an example, it says, should generally be undertaken. You know, it's not a hard law that it has to be like that same GP. And, you know, I've worked a lot in Indigenous health. Like we, you're running clinics on locum some of the time. You're never going to have that regular doctor. And I think that's where the template shortcuts, that kind of consistency is a good thing. It just kind of helps the doctor out. So, yeah, that's, to me, it's not a hard and fast, like definite no. It's a use your judgment. I guess if you do proactive planning, using your admin staff to help you booking those appointments with their regular GP at a regular interval, then that sort of thing. It's only way or, yeah. And then, you know, some of the GPs, they're happy. And especially if it's their registrar that's doing the health assessment, it becomes a teaching thing for them after I've found. And the other thing is like the registrars need like a bit of training by the staff at the clinic because they've never done a 715 before. So we'll sit down and go, okay, this is what's included in these three like health assessments assessments have a read this is what's involved um this is how long we do it like they need a bit of like orientation what template what referral pathways kind of like what you do for any new doctor starting at your clinic you kind of need to orientate them into what's going on goes so differently from clinic to clinic yeah i think that's a really key learning point for us here on how to help our registrars do it set up a process document that process, share it with them so they know what's expected, share the template, set it up so it's standard. And then they're doing good ones because if they get audited, which is the big terrible A word, if they get audited by Medicare, we're all exposed. So it's really important to make sure everyone in practice is doing a really good job. Now, my one thing that I want to bring up before we finish is 10997, 10987. Go. So one of the questions was around if they just did a BSL, would they be like, like to me, just the BSL on its own isn't really cutting the thing. The Medicare descriptor in the explanatory notes, we actually have that as our progress note shortcut. So where it says item 10997 may be used to provide checks on clinical progress, monitoring medication compliance, self-management advice and collection of information to support GP medical practitioner reviews of care plan. That's actually my shortcut. So if I'm doing the BSL with the patient, 
I might look at those first two. So checks on clinical progress might be doing the BSL and having a little chat about what's going on. And then it might be around self-management monitoring. So I would delete what I don't do and add a little bit more information. Same with the 10987, there's actually five points in that one. That's my shortcut and I delete what I don't use and add a little bit more writing next to what I'm actually doing. I feel like we need to encourage our registrars to remember that those numbers are there, that our nurses are there to help us provide care, but there is also some funding available to fund the nurses to provide that care. And a lot of registrars don't know about those two numbers. I think it's just also overwhelming. I think the whole thing's really overwhelming when you, like I've been working 10 years like in primary health and, you know, what I knew about Medicare and that when I first started, there was nothing. Like I, I was an emergency nurse. So, you know, I didn't know much about the Medicare item numbers like way back then either. So we've actually got, as part of our online modules and digital resources, we've actually got our digital chronic disease management manual and we've actually got digital billing pads so they can print those off because it's easier you might not be able to remember the item number but you can circle the sheet and send it out to the girls or that kind of thing um it's yeah to me it's easier to recognize the number go yeah that's right i have to build that as well we did that so we have that too yeah it just makes it a bit easier to get it done I really want to thank Jane Kalidjaros for giving us her absolutely vast knowledge on all of this. I think that people are saying that this is very speedy and lots of information. I'd also really like to thank the lovely Marin Island. Thank you for giving up your night. So thank you to everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you hadn't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervisors Australia on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervisors Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.